0: Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kylan, friends. Today, we are talking to Vivek Chibber, who uh, is, I mean, he's an, is he a poli-sci professor or what exactly? Sociology. Sociology professor at NYU. Um, He has a phenomenal uh, theory of politics that uh, we want to talk with him about. I have my own ideas. I want to float by him, see what he thinks of them, but the guy knows... A lot about the history of socialism, the different flavors and varieties of socialism. So there's going to be, you know, we're gonna we're gonna go deep with him today. It's going to be very nerdy. The conversation. Here's
1: what I love about Vivek that makes him such an interesting and uh, unusual thinker is that he is deeply grounded in like the theory and the ideas and the philosophy but he's also very grounded in reality. (laughs) And sometimes you don't always get that combination. He's just out with a new book um, that I highly recommend. It's called Confronting Capitalism, How the World Works and How to Change It. So he lays out his own sort of theory of political change, which I think is super, super relevant for where we are right now as a country, as a world, and also as a left movement.
0: Yeah, he's not as dismissive of the social democracies as a lot of socialists are. And that makes me... Immediately like him,
1: he's not dismissive of social democracies. He's not dismissive of the fact that you have to engage with politics, even you know within the present like you know archetype and and regime. So, a lot of thoughtful things to get into uh, with him as we're at this kind of pivot point in terms of the direction of our national politics.
0: Yeah. So uh, before we get into that, though, there's a couple things we wanted to talk about. First of all, there's a uh, an article in the Guardian, which look in a world that made sense, this would be like a bombshell story, but the world doesn't make sense. So it's not really that much of a bombshell story. In fact, when I brought it up before the show to you, you were like, I didn't even see that. Correct. Which is like, okay, well, that's a failure of all of the mainstream outlets. Because again, this is a big deal. And you're going to find out just how big of a deal it is in a second. So this is in The Guardian. They say, revealed the shocking levels of toxic lead in Chicago tap water. So they're going to give us some numbers here. The numbers are out of this world. Um, Tests performed for thousands of Chicago residents found lead, a neurotoxin, in amounts far exceeding the federal standards. One in 20 tap water tests performed for thousands of Chicago residents found lead, a neurotoxin, at or above U.S. government limits, according to a Guardian analysis of a city of Chicago data trove. And one third had more lead than is permitted in bottled water. This means that out of the 24,000 tests, approximately 1,000 homes had lead exceeding federal standards. Experts and locals say these results raise broader concerns because there, there are an estimated 400,000 lead uh, pipes supplying water to homes in the city. And the vast majority were not tested as part of the program. So they did <laughs> like a little sample wow. and they're like, yeah, this isn't good. But then when you, you realize... Four hundred thousand lead pipes. This
1: may just be scratching the surface.
0: Yeah, so like, what we're poisoning the entire city of Chicago because we, you know, refuse to do sufficient updates to our infrastructure. That's effectively what's going on here. Wow. Um, now I want to give you some more. Moreover, the city. Moreover, they say the city is not moving fast enough to eliminate the potential danger. The Guardian worked with water engineer. Elon Batonzo, who helped uncover the Flint water crisis that resulted in many mostly black residents being poisoned by lead in the Michigan City to review the test results of water tests conducted for Chicago residents between 2016 and 2021. Chicago itself has never released an analysis of the results. And they go on to say the analysis found that nine... Of the top 10 zip codes with the largest percentages of high test results were neighborhoods with majorities of black and Hispanic residents. And there were dozens of homes with shockingly high, level, uh, high lead levels. One home in the majority black neighborhood of South Chicago had lead levels of 1,100 parts per billion, 73 times the Environmental Protection Agency limit of 15 Jesus. parts per billion. Wow. So we're, it's like kind of like we're just mass poisoning. Wow. Chicago because they're not updating it. And look, when you really stop and think about it, what happened with the Flint water crisis is Jordan Sheridan has been covering in depth for years and years and years now. um, It's not even just like shocking levels of incompetence. It crosses the line into being malicious at certain points when like, they know they could do, they need to do something about it. They don't do something about it. Same thing with the Jackson situation in uh, Mississippi where they knew like, okay, we're on borrowed time and this thing is going to go. And then eventually it went and then it's just, uh, I don't know, what are we going to do? And, it's crazy that the stuff that we uh, we view as an emergency, do something now, versus the right. stuff that we're just like, nah. What are you gonna do? And I mean, the best example is, of course, you know, we've given over thirty billion dollars to Ukraine. Everything was approved like that in a bipartisan fashion yep. because they view it as this is a necessity because we want to stop the spread of, of Russia and and we want to nip that in the bud. And on the one hand, you understand that, but on the other hand, it's like, is there nothing domestically for like regular people that's the same level of you know, urgency. Like, oh, we got to do something. We got to do something.
1: Right. I mean, you think about Flint, um, which was actually in a lot of ways uh, nefar- malicious and nefarious from the beginning, because this even came from, you know, a bunch of like people who wanted to profit off of a new water. cell. I, mean, I won't get into all the backstory and details, but then you have the cover up of after they knew they were poisoning the city and they still try to hide it and try to pretend like nothing's going on. So you have Flint. Now, we've just been covering and learning about Jackson, where, you know, again, they've known for years that they have a massive issue with this water system. The state of Mississippi just got a whole bunch of money with the infrastructure project. And they have done absolutely nothing to make sure that their capital city, the largest city in the state, has drinkable water or water at all. Why? Because it's largely a city of poor black people. Now you have Chicago. You could also add to that list a lot of other places, including a lot of places in West Virginia and Appalachia that get similarly neglected. So there's a lot to say about this. I mean, the biggest thing that I always think of is it really shows you who matters in society, who people, you know, who elites care about and who they don't. That's number one. Number two, you do wonder, is this just scratching the surface? I mean, we happen to know now something about Chicago that we didn't know before. How many other places, how many other cities have failing water systems that are literally poisoning their kids and their residents as we speak? And just to be clear, There is no safe level of lead to have in your drinking water, and the effects oftentimes are irreversible. So once you have been poisoned by lead, you are likely to have impacts from that your entire life, which is something that people of Flint continue to struggle and grapple with. Um, And then you have to think about also the fact that, like, what a just core sign of rot, decay, and failure in a wealthy nation that we have so many people across the country that can't even rely on. The very basics of safe drinking water it is truly insane.
0: Um, to your point on lead, I, I don't know how many of our audience remember this, but when, when we were kids, certainly, there was leaded and unleaded gasoline. And then there was this big story that came out. Apparently, this was studied for an extensive period, and they found out that uh, there was a direct connection between in areas where there was a lot of uh, leaded gasoline that was being emitted and it was in the environment. Crime levels spiked through the roof. Mm. Now, you can make a causation correlation argument, but as soon as they cracked down on it and regulated it and got rid of the leaded gasoline, those crime rates plummeted. So, it, you know, it's it's has uh, neurological impacts, yes. in, which in turn leads to psychological impacts, which yeah. is something you don't really think about when you think about environmental issues. But I mean, on the one hand, it kind of makes sense because it's like we are part of nature. So if you if you change the ingredients of the recipe, then, you know, perhaps you can do things like tweak behavior Um I just wanted to say I went back in my own archive on Secular Talk on YouTube to because I know I have I feel like I covered a story that said like the exact percentage that it's estimated that doesn't have clean water in the U.S. I can't find that story. But uh, listen to this. So from 2020 under Trump, the EPA to allow lead mercury toxic discharge from coal plants into drinking water. That was a report from September 5th, 2020. And then also listen to this. 2018 bombshell. 70 percent of Chicago water tainted with toxic lead. So this is just like a follow-up to that story. Wow. Um, It's just, it's crazy. Now, I I did want to make a comparison real quick to put everything in perspective for everybody. Um, So, I mean, when you stop and think about it again, this is just lead pipes. It's just, hey, we don't want to update it. We don't want to spend the money. We don't want to do what's necessary to keep everybody um, safe. Compare this to, for example, the ultimate size of the bank bailouts that we did after the 2008 crash You want to guess the number? Don't look. I already looked. No, you did. Okay. (laughs) It's $29 trillion was the total amount that we bailed out the banks. $29 trillion. Here's another one for you. Uh, The Pentagon has a $35 trillion accounting black hole. And again, this is like nobody nobody talks about this. this, But, but, you know, we can't get clean water in Chicago, which, by the way, all in if you were to try to... Fix that? What's going to be a couple billion dollars? Yeah, We're talking I about mean, trillions for this shit.
1: The mayor of Jackson said that he thought it would be a billion dollars to fix <gasps> the Jackson water system. And on the one hand, you're like, holy shit, where are they going to get that money? On the other hand, you're like,
0: nah, they're giving nothing. out
1: billions left and right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, nothing. Like, it's nothing when it's, you know, for rich people or for the uh military industrial complex. And I mean, again... Does anyone really think that this state of affairs would last if we were if this was happening in McLean, Virginia, for example, one of the wealthiest zip codes in the entire country? Of course, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be it would be treated as an emergency. It would be an emergency. It would be handled like an emergency and it'd be fixed like that. Forget about it.
0: Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, I have nothing to add to that. This is a shame. And uh, I I always said it. You know this. I I don't even like the idea of like, let's update our infrastructure, you know, and that's really with this this watered down. Uh, infrastructure bill that yeah. just passed not too long ago it shows that is you what how you're talking about
1: inadequate that ultimately
0: right is. whatever happened to this notion of like forget updating it why don't we actively try to make our infrastructure number one in the world and make right. it the envy of the rest of the world why are we not talking about high-speed rail everywhere why are we not talking about making our airports state-of-the-art and better than anywhere else i mean you've told me you've traveled to the middle east sometimes and you're in like dubai or some shit and you're like jesus christ this doesn't even feel like an airport you know, you fly out of LaGuardia, New York, and you're like, am I in a third world country? <laughs> right. This is fucking crazy. Totally true. Yeah. So uh, I don't understand what happened to that. We need that attitude back, that attitude of like, I don't want to fix it. Well, I want to make it the best in the world. It's
1: because for neoliberalism. Well, yeah, rebuilding water systems and, you know, wastewater treatment plants is not super highly profitable. So it doesn't get done. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Since we've outsourced everything, we've, like, stripped our government of any sort of capacity, and we've told our people that, like, forget about having any sort of political imagination, nothing's possible, everything's gridlocked, there's no way we could get anything done. That's how you end up with this situation where the only things that get built and done are those that companies think that they can cash in on, and I guess they didn't see a profit to be made in Jackson, Mississippi, or um, actually, it was the profit that led to the problems in Flint, Michigan, so... Another wonderful story for you. This one is from uh, Matt Stoller, our uh, partner at Breaking Points, and uh, he's the author of the Substack. It's called Big, Always Following, like, Anti-Monopoly Issues, and a Great Critique of Corporate Power. And he wrote this piece. It's not that long, and it really is a work of art, so I want to read it to you. The headline here from Big uh, is, Amazon Promotes Ex-Private Prison Executive to Run Their Warehouse Training. I mean, in some ways the headline doesn't say it all, but I'm going to read on. Meet executive Dana Howard, who's in charge of learning and development for warehouse employees. He says it's always fun to keep an eye on Amazon's internal personnel moves because they speak to the general culture of the pace-setting firm in American retail and commerce. And he points out that Dana Howard is now the head of training for warehouse workers after having started at a private prison corporation. She says at Amazon, she came to their global security group and then their loss prevention team, which is to say she ran their efforts to stop employees and contractors from stealing. All of this is reasonable if distasteful. Theft and retail is a problem and having internal security is a clear need for a like Amazon. But what is surprising is that Howard was then promoted to run their learning and development team, which is Amazon's internal training program for all warehouse workers. Nothing illegal about any of this, but Howard's career path does give us some perspective on how Amazon executives understand those who did not attend college and what they are good for. To be fair to Howard, you're going to like this part too, she also made sure to run Lean In Circles for Women in Security at Amazon, The retail giant wants everyone to know, as it makes clear in this video, that it values diversity in its de facto prison guard unit. There's a metaphor in here somewhere.
0: Yeah, they just want to put the veneer of progressivism over, like, near slave driving. Yes. You know? I Uh, mean,
1: literally taking... A lady who like improved efficiency at a private prison corporation, and putting her in charge of not just like loss prevention and trying to like root out employees who are stealing socks or whatever, but now she's in charge of their training regimen, like putting them. Oh, uh, it's really something.
0: By the way, if you ran a private prison to get it to be more quote unquote efficient, I think it is fair to say you were the closest thing that we have in modern day to a slave driver. That's Cause that's what we effectively have legalized slavery in prisons and uh, especially at private prisons where what they do, like they'll make them work and they'll pay them nothing or next to nothing. And they, you know, they take those goods and they pass them off and make some sort of a profit in the process. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're in charge of like, I'm going to dot the I's and cross the T's and you know, uh, to mix metaphors here, make the trains run on time or whatever. Like that's what you're doing. You're like a slave driver. So it's bringing that mentality into Amazon to make it like ruthlessly efficient and, and, you know, disciplined.
1: Well, and, and it's putting the workers in the mold of the prisoners that she was dealing of course, with before. Yeah.
0: Which, by the way, th- there is a metaphor in there somewhere, Absolutely. right? <laughs> yeah. And she brags
1: about on her LinkedIn page that during her time at Corrections Corporation of America, which now changed their name because they were involved in so many scandals and became so toxic they had to shift their name, she says she, quote, revamped inmate admission process and revised all processing documentation, resulting in a 20 percent reduction in inmate processing time and a reduced error rate. Stoller's commentary is that she was apparently good at designing systems to herd prisoners prisoners. So naturally, she went to Amazon.
0: Yeah, I, I don't I don't think people really understand how terrible private prisons are. I mean, it's one of the it's one of a few things that 100% does not belong in the marketplace. Yes, uh, you cannot have a profit incentive in prisons, because if you stop and think about it for a few seconds, you realize they are incentivized to try to get more butts in more beds. That's exactly. And right. so you're you're setting up this incentive to want to lock more people up for things perhaps crossing the line into things that shouldn't be crimes. Right. And that's why, for example, it was the private prison industry that lobbied to get the three strike law in California, where it doesn't matter how minor those three, I don't know if it's three, I think it's three felonies. Yeah. It doesn't matter how minor those felonies are. Uh, if you have three felonies, you're, you're gone. You're gonna get locked up for good. Obviously the drug war is something that massively has helped private prisons because you're locking up nonviolent offenders for things, again, that shouldn't be crimes to, uh, I think, most reasonable people.
1: Well, it shows the failures of a lot of, like, neoliberal market-obsessed thinking because the rationale for this was like, oh, well, the government can't do anything, so let's let the markets handle it and the private prison corporations will be more efficient and so they'll save taxpayers money. But all the research says that's not what happens at all. Just like you said, but you know, incentive- if it did,
0: I don't care. That's not good. It's still not good. You know what I'm saying? Of course. Yeah. Yeah, but
1: their whole incentive is to... Uh, bilk the taxpayers for more money by, like you said, by expanding the uh, mass incarceration state, and so that's instead what happens. And then of course, they skimp on any sort of care for inmates. They also try to cherry pick which inmates they end, end up having because you know they don't want any that have any mental health issues or any physical or health problems. So it's a disgusting, grotesque, immoral uh, place to be trying to turn a profit. And of course, Amazon looked at that industry and said, "Let's take from there. Let's recruit from there."
0: They also, and I remember because I've covered this in the past, to cut costs, they will serve stale and moldy food. And there's been these nightmare stories of these, you know, entire, you know, cell blocks getting sick because they were eating stuff that was obviously not good anymore. Yes. And this is the kind of stuff that you're dealing with. They're going to skimp as much as possible um, and they're going to try to turn a profit. They're going to try to lock more people up. It really does speak to crisis of neoliberalism you can't privatize everything you right. just you can't do i mean They're, mercenary armies are another example of this yeah. is like blackwater you got this like christian nationalist who's running this private army that you sent to iraq and you know they of course they they didn't follow the same laws that our uh, troops were required to follow which is how you get like the nisor massacre for example where yeah. they gun down all these civilians yeah it's like it, when you privatize everything this is what happens like what's next what do you want to privatize uh you know you want firemen to be privatized some places have done that, and uh, and by the way, what happens when you do that? It's a disaster. Things start burning down, and hey, you didn't pay, your, pay your yeah, you didn't pay your bill. Like,
1: yeah, um, I mean, there are some core areas that should be outside of the profit motive, and this is actually a good transition to um, get into a conversation with Vivek. But I mean, think about the healthcare system, think about education, right? Think about prisons, think about basic public services, think about national security, like. These are all areas where there are other goals in mind, where the profit incentive is just going to create terrible results and end up um, creating situations the opposite of the goals the population would ultimately have. I mean, the healthcare system is a perfect example of this. All of these gritty goals that um, profit off of illness, I mean, what they make the most money off of is people being chronically sick. And so what do we have in America? We have a lot of people who are chronically sick. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out how all of that happens. So um, in any case, as I said, this is a great way to transition into a conversation with our guest today, uh, Professor Vivek Chibber. He is a wonderful thinker, sociologist, and author of a bunch of books. Um, he wrote The Class Matrix, Social Theory After the Cultural Turn. He wrote Postcolonial Theory and the Specter of Capital. His latest book is Confronting Capitalism, How the World Works and How to Change It. Let's get right to it. Professor Chibber, great to have you. Welcome.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan.
1: Thank you. Um, Likewise. And uh, so I wanted to start with kind of a a big picture question and give you a chance to lay out your case however you want to make it. So your book is Confronting Capitalism, How the World Works and How to Change It. So let's start with the question of how does the world work? (laughs) Let's start there. Easy
2: one. Nice, easy one to start (laughs) with. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I'll start with a confession. As you guys know... um, authors often have no control over what the title of a book is uh, and of course also its subtitle. So uh, it's, it's a pretty grandiose title. <laughs> uh, so you're biting I'll try off a my, lot there. Yeah. Yeah. I'll try my, my best to back it up. Uh, well, the world we live in is a capitalist world. And in order to understand the fundamentals of how it works, especially with regard to the quality of people's lives, um, the chances for a decent life, the relate, the constellation of power, who's got the money and why they've got the money, who leads the most difficult lives and why. If you want to understand that, you have to start with how the capitalist economy and through the economy, how politics works, because the economic system also governs and puts all the limits on what the political system can do. So the way the world works is actually pretty simple. Uh, It's a system in which some people have uh, the vast majority of the wealth and the vast, uh, uh, the, the biggest flows of income. And because of their control over those assets, they exert either direct or indirect control over everyone else's life. And that makes the chances for those everyone else to ha- direct their own lives, to have a- their own autonomy, to have the freedom to do what they want to do, it makes it difficult for them, especially because those few people, the capitalist class, the corporate community, the business community, whatever you want to call them, those who control the assets make their money by squeezing the lives, squeezing the income, by uh, c- exerting control over everyone else's life. So it's a system in which there's haves and have-nots, and the haves m- keep their power and their money by restricting the freedom and restricting the income of the have-nots. And this is what shows like the Kyle kolinsky show and Breaking Points are in the business of trying to reveal I'm just paid to do it in a different way.
0: You know, the way uh, Chomsky describes this landed with me a lot, and I've used the example many times, but what he says is um, like, liberal, capitalist, liberal democracy is a little bit of a contradiction in terms because we talk about how democracy is wonderful in the political sphere, but then when you get to the economic sphere where you probably spend a majority of your life, companies and corporations are actually little dictatorships in how they run. So you're spending most of your waking time like in a dictatorship, effectively. Um, Let me ask you this. Do do you think there's still a stigma against the word socialism? Because I would argue there, it definitely has gotten less over the years, but there is still a a stigma. And this is one of the reasons why I argued uh, in 2016 and in 2020, I wish Bernie had never called himself a democratic socialist. I actually said he should call himself a believer in social democracy, because I think even that little difference, I do feel like sort of destigmatizes it and could spread the ideas further. So, do you agree with that?
2: Um, you said two things, Kyle. Uh, one about what the the, uh, the the status of the word is in the public political culture, and the second was what the tactical uh, orientation should have been on Sanders' side. As for the first, yeah, yeah, there's there's a stigma. There'll always be a stigma in capitalism with this word. Uh, And that's because of what it stands for. Uh, It's, as you said, far less stigmatized today than it was even 10 years ago, and definitely than it was 15 years ago. Uh, But that stigma is always going to be there because there are too many people who are paid to stigmatize it. And there are too many people whose power depends on perpetuating that stigma. Uh, The second question of whether Sanders should have run as a social Democrat, hard to say. I I think he would have lost anyway, but um, you could... You could make the argument both ways. One is that uh, Sanders did more than anybody else in recent memory to destigmatize the word. And for people doing labor organizing, when they're asked by working class people, all right, so what do you stand for? It really helps if you have a simple single word that you can use to say, this is what I stand for. And it's the opposite of what you're having to live. And Sanders opened the door uh, to uh, uh, people who are on the ground who were organizing having a somewhat easier time than they did before. Uh, Because as you know, in the 70s and 80s, if you said that I'm a communist or a socialist, if you were a trade union, that was it. That was the end for you. And I know people right now who are doing labor organizing for whom it's become a lot easier. On the other hand, yeah, in the electoral arena, there is a big liability because now the media gets control over your packaging and over how you're presented to the world. And Mm. they did their best. Uh, to uh, to run him down with it, he he put up a good fight, but it was an uphill fight. So it's hard to say net whether it was a good idea or bad.
1: So it sort of seems like you're saying, short term, tactically in that particular election, probably a bad idea. Potentially, middle like medium to longer term, in terms of like shifting the discourse and opening up a conversation, and having a label that makes sense to people that isn't just completely demonized, possibly a good thing.
2: Yeah, although you could, as I uh, you could you should also make it a. Uh, different domains, that in the organizing domain, it had some real short-term gains as well. Uh, and that makes it more appealing and less of a big mistake than he had made. I'm on the fence about this one.
1: So let me ask you, given, uh, and I think you're correct about this, given the way that you know corporate control and political um, exercise of power, given the way those two things go hand in glove, um, what do you make of efforts to really directly engage with the electoral politics system and try to, say, push Biden to do more on student debt loan relief and those sorts of, like, practical, this is what we can win right now efforts?
2: You have to. It's no longer a world in which the left can afford to ignore elections, especially in the United States. Where we are right now in the United States is where the organized labor, socialists, even social democrats – Uh, have absolutely no traction on the ground. The the traditional way in which the left won anything was through labor organizing and through trade union organizing, which put real pressure on the government, whoever happened to be in office, whoever it was in office, they had to contend with a labor movement that had the power to shut everything down. Now, today we're in the position of having to organize that labor movement just to get it going so that in the future, there might be some real traction politically for working people. The difficulty is, Most of what's called the left is completely separated from working class people. And much of that left spends time, all of its time talking about itself, Hmm. talking about cultural slights, uh, about identity politics and things like that. So the biggest problem now is how do you bridge that gap? How do you walk over from your isolated institutional settings to where working people are? Elections give you an entree into people's lives in a way that in this culture, nothing else does. Mm. So first of all, it allows you to take, as it were, the message to the people, which ordinarily is just impossible to do. But the second thing is, even if you did have an organized working class, you can't ignore what the government does and can do both for you and against you. So if, you know, if Build Back Better or whatever, as we saw it getting destroyed through a thousand cuts so that by the time the uh, IRA is passed. It's virtually basically has nothing for working people. Imagine if when it started, it had had a big labor movement behind it. But imagine that big labor movement without any representation inside the state. Now it has to fight twice as hard. Mm. So what you need to have, it's not enough to say it to working people, "Get on a, uh, go on strike, you should fight, uh, put pressure on the state. Because how that pressure is translated into actual policy is deeply affected by whether the people in the state are dragging their feet as hard as they can to minimize the influence that labor has or whether they're trying as a labor party would or a socialist party would to maximize that power on in the workplace so that they can get the most traction out of it I, the, the days when you could ignore elections as some parts of the far left did or or advocated for in the fifties and
0: sixties, those are gone. So I wanna ask you about some definitions here because oftentimes with politics, it gets, there's so much gray area and it's very rarely black and white and you'll get different definitions from different people when you talk about different political labels. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the difference between say social democracy, what that entails uh, versus something like market socialism And then tell me if you think they're even mutually exclusive.
2: Um, There is, if you go strictly by what the two concepts are supposed to uh, to convey, there is a qualitative difference between them. Though, of course, you can shade over into one from the other. What social democracy is basically, it's a institutional form of capitalism. You still are inside capitalism. you have social democracy but because why you still have the economy that's fundamentally under the control of private ownership you might have a large state sector and you have a lot of power for trade unions but the investment decisions in the economy are still in private hands what distinguishes that from our kind of capitalism free market capitalism is that the degree of the power that capitalists have is much less than in a free market economy and that the gap in income and in assets, et cetera, between labor and capital is a lot less. So you think of social democracy as a capitalism in which labor organizations have a great deal more power and influence, and in which the income and the, uh, the resources that are distributed are heavily influenced by labor, so that labor is partly directing the economy. Now, market socialism is a system in which you might have a market, but private ownership is dramatically reduced. And in most models of market socialism, it's gone. So one market of one model of market socialism is you have no private ownership of the means of production and the state owns everything. But you don't have full planning. You still have competition. Prices still decide uh, where investment flows are going to go. And you'll still have people in a labor market looking for jobs. Now, another model is you don't have state ownership of everything, but you might have co-ops, no private ownership but co-ops owning everything. And a third one might be that you have workers in some way or form through trade unions deciding what's going to go where. What all of these have in common is that in in Marxist terms, there's no exploitation. There's Mm. no private owners who are now getting workers to work for them. It's community or public authorities of some kind. Where it differs from planning is that markets still play a very important role, unlike in a Soviet-style planned economy. So the qualitative difference between social democracy and market socialism is that while both have markets, in one of them, there's still a capitalist class. And in the other, there isn't supposed to be one.
1: Do we have successful examples or what is the closest example we have to a successful impleta- Im- implementation of market socialism?
2: No. Uh, for limited duration in Hungary, in Yugoslavia... Uh, they did implement these for about twenty to twenty-five years. They weren't total disasters, and I'm sure, in about fifteen to twenty percent of your viewers, there's going to be death threats coming through now to you for my saying this. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime anybody asks about revolution planning or uh, one or two other of these totem- totemic things on the left, and I give the wrong response, uh, there's a slight tremor.
1: Just, uh, just <laughs> don't read a- your, just don't read the comments. You'll be fine.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, So now that doesn't mean it can't work, market social. The problem problem was that the market socialism that was tried in Yugoslavia and in Hungary was grafted on top of a central planned economy. Mm. So they tried to modify and maybe reduce central planning to give more role for markets. But the entire institutional structure still revolved around the apparatchiks and the plans and all the bureaucrats. And it was very hard to uh, reduce their power so that you can get more power for the markets. So it didn't work, but I don't think it's a death sentence for market socialism. Uh, I just think that the road to it might might give you different results if instead of the road going through central planning first and then grafting markets into that central planning, instead you went through social democracy and radically or slowly reduced the power of capitalists within that social democracy.
1: I, I feel like we have a kind of good intuitive sense of like what went wrong with centrally planned economies. But what are some of the areas where you can get tripped up? Like what are some of the potential tripwires that can go awry with market socialism?
2: Um, it, it's hard to say, Crystal, because we don't have a lot of uh, historical examples. So it, you, you're sort of imagining what the tripwires would be. Um, and But the, the biggest tripwire... I think would be not the planned part of it because so so here's one way to think of market socialism which i think would be the most plausible which is um i actually think if you just started off with a sanders style model of take the state taking over some key sectors of the economy what used to be called the commanding heights of the economy Mm -hmm. healthcare transportation housing um big chunks of the media through some sort of public uh, funding of the media, Mm -hmm. um, the national highway system, uh, all these things, you already got about 40% of the economy under your control. And we know that we can plan in those sectors because there's a lot of planning in those sectors in capitalism as well. Utilities Mm -hmm. is another uh, Mm -hmm. sector that ought to be nationalized. So let's say you've taken over 50 to 60% of these big uh, sort of um, quasi monopolistic sectors where you know you can plan them. Now you've got about 50, 55% of the economy that's left to markets. Now you slowly start eliminating private ownership in those. Maybe you start with hotel chains. Maybe you then move on to uh, uh, the auto industry or something like that. Through an iterative process, you can see how far can you take planning? And to, in what domains is, is it just beyond your reach? And you're going to have to leave it to markets. Now, if you leave it to markets with some kind of private ownership, the difficulty is going to be that the private owners are going to be like sharks. They're never going to stop trying to extend their control over the market. If you eliminate the private owners altogether and you have some kind of co-ops, I think the biggest tripwire is that as long as there's competition amongst those co-ops, they're going to do what competitive firms do, which is they're going to keep their own wages low. They're going to try to, you know, what we call self-exploit. Uh, You're going to turn workers competing against other workers. So the biggest tripwire is that you've eliminated a big chunk of capitalism, and you've either A, still got capitalists, and they're your permanently deployed lobby, trying to push back against the state sector, or you've got workers competing against each other, and that's eating away at the social fabric that you'd like to see inside market socialism. Those are the two that immediately come to mind.
0: So what's your sense of because we're talking about here uh, central planning versus markets. Uh, what's your sense on what the right balance is there? Because oftentimes, you know, you'll, you might have this debate in left circles and some people will be for a more centrally planned economy and others will be for market socialists where they do want to leave a lot up to the market, but just have uh, worker co-ops, which is, you know, democracy in the workplace. Um, I, I feel like it's a little bit of a false dichotomy here in the first place, because you just described there, you know, uh, the state can take over 40, 50% of of industries. And in fact, there are Scandinavian countries today, and correct me if I'm wrong, professor, but there are Scandinavian countries today that have about 40 or 50% of their economy is is, uh, is taken over centrally planned, et cetera. It, is, is it your sense that there always needs to be a balance there? and You need some semblance of markets versus central planning, or do you lean more in one direction or the other direction?
2: I think the, uh, when you there's no obvious answer to this. And whenever you are confronted where you don't have an obvious answer, you should go back to what your principles are. I think there are two principles that we should be, uh, actually three principles we should be working with. One is that you want to reduce the economic and social power of capitalists to the maximum extent possible. Maximum extent possible means you're going to go as far as you can without creating new problems with yourself. And those. For, the, for yourself. The new problems would be if you eliminate eliminate them altogether and you do not really have the capacity to replace them with full planning, then you shouldn't do it because a fully planned economy then will have its own new problems, amongst which will be a very unhappy population. So you go as far as you can. That's practical. That's that's principle number one. Principle number two, then, is that you want to that make sure that the planning you have isn't encroaching on people's freedoms. And it's not just that It's a single party dictatorship and it's going to run everything, that kind of thing. A lot of planning will require intrusions into people's private lives. So people like to say that, well, planning will work because it'll be democratic and everybody will give their preferences for what they want to consume and what they'd like to be produced. Well, a lot of that stuff is information people won't want to give up because what they want to consume may not be something they want everyone else to know. So you want to make sure that these planning bodies who are asking people to send lists of everything they want to see produced don't include uh, things like you know, sex toys <laughs> and um, <laughs> exotic underwear and things like that, which people <laughs> might actually want. So you, you want to leave certain things to private decisions, and those private decisions have real, um, I think, salience uh, for the left. Um, so and, so and don't the nationalize
1: one... the sex toy industry right out of the gates. You got to wait. That one's further down the path.
2: Yeah, I mean, that. Ha- can you imagine some bureaucrat deciding which toys you can and cannot use? It, it just makes for a pretty uh, tricky situation, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, the third principle uh, is that you don't want the new system to be one that creates new antagonisms. Which So if you have a co-op based system and everyone's competing against each other, you've generated a new form of competition where now you've got new kinds of antagonisms in society which mm. the whole point of a market socialist or a social democratic system was to try to reduce. So now, given that, I don't know, that, that could mean maybe 60% ownership, 40% ownership, uh, tripartite bargaining versus non-tripartite bargaining. We'll have to see through practice which institutions are best in line with these principles that we have.
0: Is it possible to like, because this is something I always come back to and perhaps why I'm more moderate than some people who listen to this, but is it possible to totally eliminate competition, because from my perspective, I always said, like, I would like it if we actually lived in some semblance of a meritocracy where there's not too much income and wealth inequality and the floor is a reasonable floor. I want anybody to be able to go to school. I want your healthcare taken care of. I mean, I could go down the list here, right? But uh, I mean, this is where I think some of the the conservative criticisms of leftism start to make a little bit of sense to me. This notion of like, we can all just be fully cooperative and communal all the time. I would argue, no, we're both communal and cooperative, and we are competitive. So doesn't it make sense to leave uh, remnants of a market to to harness that aspect of human nature?
2: Absolutely. It's not only allowed, I think you can make the case that it's necessary because uh, competition does bring out the best of us in many, many domains. The point about competition is you want to keep it to parts of life and in sectors where A, it doesn't rip the social fabric apart, and B, the end process doesn't give one group of people power over another group of people. Mm. So, you know, sports is a great example where imagine, you know, people like to make fun of the left because everything becomes the Special Olympics. And it's true. Giving out participation trophies to everyone has its downsides. Kids also like to compete. They like to see who's coming out on top. Now, that's a domain in which you can enjoy competition because it doesn't give anyone power over anyone else and it doesn't rip people apart, can actually bring people together. Outside of sports, outside of school, you can also see other ways in the market where this might be true as well. That's why market socialism has appealed to people because in theory, it gives you the ability to have the best of both worlds, to have all the benefits of competition and how that gets people to innovate and come up with new things. But at the same time, if it's working right, It's supposed to uh, preclude the possibility of it leading to domination or exploitation.
1: So it seems to me what you're advocating for is sort of like an incremental approach to ultimately a radical outcome. And even, you know, within left circles, some of your approach would be controversial, like the willingness to move through social democracy into market socialism, for example. And I know you've um, made this critique as well, that effectively within social democracies, you can have the seeds of that system's own destruction because you allow the capitalists to stay in place. They end up co-opting the political system, continuing to try to grab back the sectors that they've lost. They see this now is an existential threat to you know their very survival and like ability to um, exploit the people they want to exploit. So how do you move through social democracy without you know ultimately backsliding to something more like the neoliberalism that we have now?
2: So to the first part of your question, I do uh, think that some kind of incrementalism is the way out, and that's not so much a particular preference that I have. It's just seeing the world around you and saying it's time to grow up. Yeah. Uh, all this talk of revolution is fine uh, on the weekend or when you're sitting in a bar and you're drinking beers and all that. But uh, right now in this world, uh, the even if you think you'd like to have a big old break with capitalism and a rupture of some kind, you don't do that without a highly organized working class. You don't do that without a real political links between working people, the majority of the population and a political party. So... Even if you're all about revolution, you've first got to do the work that social Democrats do, which is organize labor, build a party, get over identity politics, start talking about everyday needs that people have. And maybe down the line sometime in the future, some possibility of a break with capitalism is possible. But that's only going to be possible if you've done the hard work of organizing, building parties and building real communities. So I think it's not really a choice. This is what we have to do. If we don't do that, then the world that we're seeing right now is one in which working people aren't going to wait around for the left to get its act together. If the right comes along and offers them what looks like solutions, they're going to take it. So the challenge for us is to get organized to the point where the left can offer real solutions to people who are being ground into dust right now in neoliberalism. Now, that being the case, that having said that, I think that if socialism is possible, it's going to have to be through gradually encroaching on the capitalist prerogatives. Now, I say gradually. There's nothing gradual about moving to single single payer with one legislation. You've eliminated 15% of the control that private capitalists have. There's nothing per, per se gradual about nationalizing housing or public transportation. Those are pretty big leaps. They're just not as big leaps as the weekend revolutionaries want to see but it'll still take a lot just to get that much.
0: Yeah, and and I, I also wanna to respond to that point too, cause as somebody who, it you know, I can identify as a number of labels cause I think a number of them fit me accurately. But one of the ones I've often used is that I, I'm a believer in social democracy to the idea that it, you know, has the seeds of its own destruction. Um, but this is also why, you know, constitutions are important because you could set up some sort of constitutional social democracy um, and so in other words, you take certain things off the table, you make the bar to change that constitution very high, and then the capitalists could try all they want. But if it's, you have a good constitution, then I find it difficult. It would be difficult for them to work around that. And I'm not saying they're going to, they're not going to try. Of course they're going to try. Yeah, um, yeah. but you know, it also, uh, I'm a believer in strong anti-corruption politics, really has a, a massive impact because prior to the 1970s in this country, we had a radically uh, different system. It was a number of Supreme Court decisions from the 1970s and onwards that made it so that basically money equals speech. And so whoever has more money has, has a louder voice in our system. And you had, you know, our politicians now are basically totally bought and owned by billionaires, CEOs, corporations, the wealthy. And if you just roll back that, that would put us in a position where, uh, you know, the average people would have a a much, much bigger say. So I feel like you have an instinct like I have, which is how do we improve lives in the most concrete way possible, which is why you seem to care a lot about empiricism. You seem to care a lot about evidence. And if that makes you fall on a position of like, incrementalism is just a necessity, uh, I respect that because it's not a popular thing to say these days, but I think it's undeniably correct. But one of these ideas that I've been toying with a way to like drastically improve people's lives, um, it it with one uh, you know policy change, and I've talked to you about this. Um, it, it gives me hope when I see all of these uh, direct ballot initiatives in all the various states uh, around the U.S. Because something like eighty percent of the time, the the position that I think is more correct ends up winning. So just to give a few examples here, uh, sixty-two percent in Missouri are about to legalize marijuana, and that's a deep red state, but they're on the side of that. In the 2020 election, even though Donald Trump won the state of Florida, 60% of Florida voters also voted to raise the minimum wage in Florida. So you know, when people are given a chance to direct to to vote directly on the policies that impact their lives, economic or otherwise, they generally make the right decision. So if if we could either have a direct ballot initiative in all 50 states where, you know, you could pass some federal law that says each state has to set up their own direct ballot initiatives, or you just have a federal law, where every time you go vote for president, you vote on the top five issues, you have a process to get on there. Uh, even though there are ways that moneyed interest can sort of work around that, because you've seen these like massive misinformation campaigns mm-hmm. sometimes where they had these ads where they lie about what the vote really means. Uber and, then, and Lyft and Uber and California Lyft, exactly. And stuff, yeah. But look, but the, the, the bright side, though, is even though that does happen, uh, number one, you could change the laws about who can fund ads on that and whatnot. But number two, um, like 80 percent of the time, the better position wins. So is that something that that uh, you see as well? Does that give you hope? I'd like to call this like Kyleism or something where you have (laughs) constitutional uh, direct democracy.
2: Yeah, let me, um, you know, I neglected to answer the the last part of uh, Crystal's question and which also feeds into what you were saying. So let me start with that because Crystal uh, ended by asking, does social democracy or potentially even market socialism have the seeds of its own destruction and is that its biggest weakness because you leave the capitalist class intact or substantial chunks of it and they'll be trying to undermine it over time. And I think the answer to that is yeah, the, the biggest right now structural worry about social democracy, even though it's so much preferable to what we have today, is that if you look at the experience of social democracies in the Nordic countries, which are the most advanced ones, Uh, In the 70s, 80s and 90s, what you saw is a steady rollback of the um, welfare state and of the powers of labor and of the scope of trade unionism, et cetera, et cetera. So that right now, it's not entirely surprising that the far right in Sweden for the first time is making big gains in now close to, what, 90 years or something. Mm. Uh, And that kind of goes now, Kyle, to what you were saying. Um, You're 100 percent right that if you people can be fooled about things that they don't directly experience but you're not going to fool them about things that are experienced that they're experiencing every day so you know with workers if you tell them hey you know what a lower wage is much better for you <laughs> what do you think they're going to say if you tell them you don't really need health care or if you tell them that your boss is your best friend it doesn't go very far <laughs> but if you tell them you know the best way to make sure you have steady employment reduce taxes on the rich because Oh, look what it does. It increases investment. High investment means more jobs, more jobs means more security, blah, blah, blah. You want to know how to best improve your lives? Uh, Supply side economics, or let's close off immigration. All these sorts of things, they they have to rely on what they call expert opinion. Mm. And a lot of politics is about getting expert opinion to map onto people's direct experiences. You Mm. validate their direct experiences and then you feed them a lot of crap to to get them to vote for you because they think that's gonna help them out. So now, if those direct ballot initiatives that you're talking about are over things like minimum wage, yeah, they're gonna be right 80% of the time. But it, it is possible to put things on the agenda which are against working class interests, but which end up looking like they're in line with those interests because they require information, analysis and things like that. So my worry is this, the goal of the left has to be to organize the class, to build a permanent presence within the class. And for that, our vision has to go beyond the direct ballot initiatives, the door knocking, the canvassing. Now the big thing is something called deep canvassing, which I guess (laughs) means you talk really loud. Or (laughs) I don't know.
0: Sounds kind of hot. (laughs) when
2: When the left had any kind of real influence, it was when they didn't just come around every four years or two years to try to get you to vote for somebody. It's when yeah. they lived in those same neighborhoods, when they worked with those same people, and then those people trusted these labor activists, these socialists, these Labor Party people, because they were the same people. They were them. And now it's not just the ballot initiatives. It's not just the elections. It's also fighting every day for their everyday lives so that both of those... um initiatives, both struggles, to use a hackneyed language, the electoral and the everyday are two wings of the same struggle. Where we are right now is where we hope that the electoral stuff swings the right way. But you're not going to win that fight in the long run. I just don't think you are because of the way the the capitalist state is structured and the way the, the property classes always have a huge advantage in that. You have to use the elections as a bridgehead as a way of then directing it to the people's lives so that you can it can become a way of better organizing them. Otherwise, the winds of electoral conflict blow both ways and they typically will not, in a sustainable fashion, be with labor.
1: So uh, one of the steps, that you mentioned earlier to um, have effective left organizing again in working class communities is to quote, get over identity politics, is how you phrased it. Based. How do we do that?
2: <laughs> Look, what you have to understand is this uh, the left today, and especially the progressives, often make this, uh, they describe politics this way that it, identity politics emphasizes race or gender. And uh, socialists emphasize class. And that's completely wrong. And it, it, once you frame it that way, you've lost the debate. Identity politics doesn't emphasize race. Identity politics emphasizes the interests of rich black and brown people over the interests of working class black and brown people. It's a form of class politics. And identitarian feminism is the same way. If you want to watch Hillary Clinton's new show and call it feminism, fine. But then that means the vast majority of women in America want to have nothing to do with feminism. So I, I, what I de- if identity politics should be seen as a class strategy. Mm. It's the way in which the elite sections of what's called you know, oppressed groups, if you want to call them uh, rich black people or brown people oppressed, but the elite sections of them use the political culture and whatever means they have available to them to advance their class interests. Now, that leaves the vast majority of black and brown people behind. So what you have is not so much race versus class. You have two different kinds of race politics or two different kinds of class politics. You have a race politics which pits the ambitions and the goals of wealthy brown and black people against the vast majority. Or another way to think of it is you have a class politics in which the class interests of black, brown, or wealthy women are pit against the class interests of black and brown people or working class women. So what you re- it's not race versus class. It's two different visions of race politics or two different visions of class politics.
0: So how would you respond to uh, criticism of that? That like, look, you know, poor black people all the time deal with, uh, for example, being pulled over disproportionately. Uh, We all know that uh, white people sell drugs actually more than blacks do, but blacks get arrested more for selling drugs. You have the sentencing disparities. There was the, you know, the crack cocaine versus powder cocaine difference and uh, death penalty disparities. White person commits the same crime, um, more likely to not get the death penalty versus a black person who commits the same crime. How do you respond to the criticism of like, um, look, there are uh, some areas where class doesn't necessarily explain the difference when it comes to identity. So, how do you tell a poor black person or person of color, um, "Hey, hop off the identity stuff and just focus on class"? When for some people, it is specifically identity that they, you know, they're they're oppressed over.
2: The you're absolutely right. And the uh, the point to to be clear on is that it's not that poor black and brown people don't face discrimination or uh, an imbalance in the way the laws are meted out, et cetera. It's that the reason they are far more vulnerable along these lines is because of their poverty. So it's often said that, look, a black person will be more um, uh, liable to be pulled over or to be arrested or to be picked up for some kind of crime than a white person. Actually, it's poor black people who are much more liable. So if you compare the data on uh, wealthy black people versus poor white people, The disparity tends to vanish. And in fact, the the poor white people are far more likely to be incarcerated or to be pulled over or something than a wealthy black person. So it's that the, the poor, regardless of race, are always worse off than the rich, regardless of race. Of course, if you compare black middle class people to black to white middle class people, the black person will be worse off. But if you're trying to understand the salience of class, that's the wrong comparison. You should be comparing wealthy black people to poor white people or wealthy white people to wealthy to poor white people. And what you will see is that across the board, except in some very unusual circumstances, poor uh, white people do worse than wealthy black and brown people. Sh-
0: Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, should we um, should we openly embrace the idea that is now? Tarred as like out of style, and some even make the argument that this is bigoted. Although I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that one, but the 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 notion of MLK's colorblind society, because I think in in the end, the end goal has to be to get to a place where people genuinely don't see skin color and it doesn't it doesn't mean anything to them. Now I understand that there are conservatives who will invoke, oh, I don't see color. To be purposefully obtuse to something that might objectively have to do with racism, so it's almost used as like a an escape hatch for some people who, you know, don't have you know egalitarian views. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it can be used to ignore real issues by oh no, I don't even see color. So all the facts and stats you're giving me about how you know this is an issue or that's an issue, I I don't really see it. But ultimately there was a time when the left like sort of embraced that as the ideal. And then now that's, that's become now there's like a, an anti-racist mantra of like to kind of be openly sectarian in the sense that you say, look, these are the oppressed groups. They are the oppressed groups by definition. And we should talk about how much different it is to be this group versus the majoritarian culture, the, the white group. And, but, like, I, I can't. I, maybe I'm old school. Maybe it's my own bias as a white dude. But, like, I don't see any way to create, um, you know, class solidarity and class consciousness and actually unite other than to actually try to abide by the principles of the old colorblind idea. Am I wrong on that?
2: No. Uh, if you can't have this as your vision, what the hell are you doing? What are you fighting for? You're fighting for a permanent labeling of people. And it's not just, it's not just black versus white, white anymore. Now there are ever more gradations. Everybody needs to have their identity. Everybody needs to have their own uh, special medal in the oppression Olympics now. Uh, if, you, if your goal is not to move to a society in which people uh, no longer see each other through the lens of color, then you're fighting the wrong fight because you're fighting for a society of endless tribal warfare in which there is no social fabric where people can re- relate to each other on any other kind of terms. It's it's a huge mistake to reject the slogan that you want to move to a colorblind society. You, d- you don't want to ignore oppression. You don't want to ignore color-based oppression, but of course you would like to see it if the, your kids, the next generation, when they grow up and they're playing with other kids, they just see them as other kids. When people relate to each other in society, they judge each other on what MLK said, on their merits, on their talents, on their qualities as human beings, not on the biological accident of their skin color. Look, I mean, the whole point of justice is that you don't t- treat people on grounds or on things that for which they have no responsibility. Mm. I'm not responsible for my skin color. A white kid isn't responsible for the fact that he's white, but the, from the moment he's born, if you tell him, as a lot of progressive now wanna tell him, that everything he has is because of slavery, or everything he has is because his parents and his community oppress other people, you're creating somebody who's either going to have a catastrophically low self-image or somebody who's going to say, screw all of you. You won't blame me for everything that's ever happened in the world. And I just got here. I'm just six years old. So uh, old school is the only school there is on this. And look, if the left doesn't come around to this, it'll it'll be dead before too long because it's a diseased way of looking at life.
1: Well, let's talk about, too, um, the realignment that we've seen that really starts with the Reagan era, but has been accelerated with the Trump era, where you see the white working class in particular moving to the right, but you also see uh, working class Latino men in particular um, moving right and increasingly identifying as Republicans. Um, First, where do you think that that comes from? What are sort of the roots of that shift to the right?
2: Um, let's first of all, just acknowledge and just register the fact that the numbers still quite small. So Latinos still in very large numbers, uh, majoritarian, uh, in majorities vote for Democrats and black still, of course, in large majorities vote for Democrats and the historical reasons for that. Uh, though there's no denying that there's a bleeding of support away from the Dems. Um, we're all sort of trying to figure this out because, the polls are not fine grained enough to get us a good sense of what exactly is going on and the scholarship on this through things like ethnographies and all that is very thin because most social scientists are much more in in sort of imbued with this um uh what's the word um the, the same discourse and framework of identitarianism uh as as mainstream media is so they don't if they see white people or if they see Latino men moving to the right, they already have the answers. It's because they're misogynist or it's because they were born <laughs> racist or something like that. So they don't treat them as re- reasonable, rational people and then try to figure out what's behind all this. So we're, we're left guessing. Let me start by saying this. You shouldn't be surprised to see it, what the data, what the polls seem to show is that the Latino men who are moving to the Republican party are doing it because they're socially conservative. And there's also a certain amount of women's support for the Republicans, surprisingly so, on what is thought of as social conservatism, et cetera. Now, what do we make of that? So the typical response from academics, liberals is that, well, this is what misogyny looks like, or that this is what right-wing male culture looks like. Well, maybe, but you also have to contend with the fact that there's a very large section of women in minority communities who also hew to a kind of social conservatism. So what do you make of that? Well, I'm not surprised and socialists have never been surprised by this. The reason is in a rapacious barbarian kind of capitalism that we have today this what is what is called a neoliberal capitalism. When people don't have social supports for each other. If you look back to the 19th century, which is the last time that you had this sort of situation what do you find working people have to rely on their networks on their communities on their families uh and on institutions that they've inherited over time as against institutions of the working class is building up like trade unions or the welfare state because either they don't exist like in the 19th century or they're being torn apart like today now where you're in a situation where your community and communitarian concerns institutions like the church are the only institutions that are left and they might actually do some social good every now and then you are going to value community over what you see as a individualism run amok. Mm. And if those individualists also talk down to you the way American liberals do, Mm -hmm. if they tell you everything that's wrong with you, your culture, your gender, your sexuality, then not only the men, the women are also going to say you're waging war on us, us being my man and me or my family and me, whatever. So the a social conservatism is natural among working class people. And the left has to respect. It. You have to respect the fact that people value their communities, that they value the many of the institutions which you identify with the right. And until you are able to imbricate yourself in their lives, live with them, recruit from them, show them the respect and that show them that you're not trying to tear those communities apart but to build on them so that those communities end up being affirming components of people's lives, not means of domination. So that you can be a woman inside a church community, but that church community will not be allowed to dominate you or oppress you. And you can still have the church or your community. That's when I think left will be more um, successful with these groups. So I'm not entirely surprised, Crystal, that sections of working people are moving to the Republicans because the Republicans have taken over the language of community. The left doesn't have it anymore. And community is something that working class people throughout the modern era have cherished.
0: So would you say that it might be a detriment to lean into uh, sort of a left or libertarian left position on social issues? So for example, you know, one of the things I definitely think makes sense to do is to legalize marijuana, at the very least decriminalize it. I mean, me personally, I'd legalize tax and regulate all drugs. I mean, maybe there's some you just decriminalize as opposed to legalize, but like leaning into that, for example, leaning into, um, you know, uh, gay rights, leaning into a a, a pro choice position, um, you know, go down the list of social issues is should there, should leftists have something that makes them in their mind that makes them more cautious on these fronts, thinking, oh, we might lose working class support if we go down this path or because me personally, I always feel like on issues of like tradition or social conservatism, I actually have no issues taking those head on because I think we have a stronger argument for like a libertarian left position of live and let live and increased freedom. Um, do you agree with that perspective or do you think like tread carefully because you don't want to sort of blow up the coalition for an ancillary issue?
2: Um The goal is to organize working people, men, women, non-binary, heterosexual, gay, everything. And the goal is to realize that since the working class is the vast majority of society, it's gonna have every single one of these issues internal to it, represented in it. Which means that if you wanna bring them together, the first uh, principle is mutual respect and you respecting them. You're not gonna have mutual respect if you say, well, there's this 6% of you that are gay and we can wait on that crap. We're gonna do it later. You have to support those, those, those struggles, those demands for equality, the same way as you insist that black people, even though they're only 14% of the population should have equality. So at a fundamental level, you can't say that we're gonna backpedal on some issues because they're only small numbers of people. Now, tactically, at any given moment, you might say that we're going to have to live with X, Y, or Z at being sort of demoted on our list because right now we're not ready to take it on. That's always been true. It's always going to be true. Um, my view, Kyle, is much like yours, which is I think most people don't have a problem with these things. It, the reason sexuality has been weaponized in this way is because the right found out that if we run with this horse. we can use it against the left, because we're going to say they this is just one instance of them tearing your communities apart, not respecting your communities, not respecting traditions. If we are in the position of showing that we, in fact, respect their communities and part of our tradition in our community has been to let people mind their own goddamn business, to do whatever they want in the privacy of their bedroom or to make friends with whoever they want. As long as no one has a material interest in sustaining those, those, domination, those forms of domination the way in the South, planters did in the 1940s and 50s, in American culture, it's a fairly libertarian culture. And most people don't have a problem with letting people live their lives. What they recoil against is when they think liberals are disrespecting their larger life, and it's... Whether it's sexuality or marijuana or anything else, that's simply one component of the assault on their traditions, on their traditional ways of being. Those traditional ways of being include all sorts of stuff that we would actually cherish today.
1: Yeah. Um, Let me ask you a question that falls into this realm of like the pragmatic approach. So if you look right now. Um, you know, white people who didn't go to college are overwhelmingly, you know, in the Republican camp. They're with Trump. They tend to agree, you know, uh, more consistently on a a whole host of issues with the Republican Party than they do certainly with a left position. At the same time, you have um, affluent liberal suburbanites who are increasingly moving into the Democratic Party. And so, On an issue, just to take an example like Medicare for all, I can see an easier path to winning over those like upper middle class liberals to supporting it than I can to a lot of, um, you know, super Trump supporting white working class voters. So is there a pragmatic argument for saying it'd be great to have the multiracial working class coalition, but maybe the more achievable thing in order to notch some political wins right now is to go in hard on persuading the uh, professional class, liberal class.
0: They're still working class.
2: Uh, I I, I don't know. Uh, There's a general question you're asking, Crystal, about whether for tactical grounds you might draw on the voting base you have so that you can pass legislation. And then there's a specific issue of single payer or Medicare for all. I'm not sure your premise is right about Medicare for all that the Trump-based white working class would not support Medicare for all. Um, You know, there was this great um, interview that Bernie did about a year ago, and somebody said to him, why why are you going down to Georgia? It's a red state. You're never going to get Georgia. And Sanders' response was, you're telling me that working class people in Georgia don't want a a higher minimum wage, don't want Medicare for all? I don't care what the polls say. If I go and talk to them, and if I explain to them what's entailed, and that cut across all the misinformation, I think they'll come to me. I think that's true. I think Medicare for all is something where if you're a working class person, you're gonna to come to it if it's explained to you correctly. There's some people in trade unions who are worried that they might lose some really good benefits that trade unions are given, them. that's true. And that's the part of the working class that you're gonna have a hard time, I think, winning over because they actually will lose something with Medicare for all. But most working people I think will come to it though suburban base i think there's a demographic split on something like this I, it is not a surprise that it was the 18 to 28 or 30 crowd that was the most fanatical of the bernie supporters because even though they're professionals they're the ones in the gig economy and they don't get any kind of medical um uh, insurance the older professionals typically have jobs that comes with um with medicine with the health care and so they're able to act on other components of their class instincts which is screw the poor the younger professionals, professional, not college. I'm talking about professional because a lot of college educated people are workers now. Yeah. But if you're talking about professionals, younger professionals, their instinct is to say, screw the poor, but they'd like to have their health care. So I think you you can draw on that base, but you should work on the Trump working class because I think you can bring them to a single payer position because it's in their material interest. Now, on the larger issue, uh, Crystal, yeah, there might be positions like, look, defense, it, it's a it's very hard for progressive to win on a um, peace agenda <laughs> because the media will just come after you. They'll say, this, this candidate wants your children to die and you're just going to have a very hard time winning on that. So you might have to draw on getting elected and then once you're in office, start whittling away at the defense budget. That's an example where I think your strategy m- might be necessary. I don't think Medicare for all, necessarily fits that bill.
0: I, I mean, I guess on, on all the messaging stuff, I really think I'm like, this is the area where I'm the most optimistic, because I think that um, it is definitely possible to message in a way where you even win in the foreign policy conversation. You definitely win on the issue of Medicare for all. So a poll from Hill and Harris X, which came out in 2020, found that 69 percent of registered voters support Medicare for all. Including forty six percent of Republicans, so almost half of Republicans, and I think you're correct that it probably is because those are the, you know, the the less well off financially, forty six percent. Right. But then among Democrats, to get back to your original question, yeah, eighty eight percent support it. So right. a lot of these like professional middle class people where there might be a cultural divergence, right? They're total they totally would have went and voted for Bernie Sanders if it was Bernie in twenty sixteen or twenty twenty.
1: Right. But then ultimately they didn't. They voted for Joe Biden because of election. Yeah, Crystal,
0: well, I think that's the it's, it's yeah. electability, though. That's all it came down to. They're so scared the, that, of Trump yeah. that they're like, "Oh, I'm i told that this guy's the only one who could beat him."
2: Uh, the biggest lesson I think for the for us, any uh, the left, for progressives of the Sanders campaign is this: I, I don't, I don't, I think it's very, very hard to win on a social democratic platform if you're just uh, fighting for the existing spectrum of votes. Mm. And Sanders knew this. Sanders, whenever he was asked, how are you going to get any of this stuff passed? How are you going to get through the electoral system? Again and again, he kept saying, he used the word revolution. He said, we're going to have a social revolution. He meant something very specific by that. He said, I am going to draw, half of the electorate has given up on the system. They think it's rigged. They think it's controlled by the rich. If I give them an alternative, they're going to come out and vote. And they're the ones who will catapult me over the existing traditional voting base, because that voting base is skewing towards the suburbs, the well, and you guys crystal on breaking points and Carl, you and your, in your show, both of you have emphasized this, that what Sanders found out, and I think it's hundred percent, right. Is that they will not come out to vote. If you just give them the message, it's that the, 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 the dejection, the cynicism is, is too deep. Mm. And this is why I think this brings me back to this electoral issue. You, you're you not going to, I think, successfully fight for this agenda, the Sanders agenda or something more ambitious, unless you have a permanent presence in working class communities and you literally put them on buses and bring them to the voting station when it's time to vote because they have given up. And- They're not going to come back unless you bring them back, unless you unless you're part of that that culture. So a lot of this debate over messaging, over how to package things, it's a problem because um, when it comes time for the elections, um, even the free media time that Sanders got on mainstream media wasn't enough. They were able to outflank him and they were able to just rely on political cues and the Jim Clyburn's of the world to just tell everyone nice idea ain't going to work. Right. Uh, I, I think you, you you have to go beyond the existing electorate, and yeah. Sanders found out he can't. But just a messaging
1: thing. Well, and that brings us back to maybe this is a, a potentially hopeful place um, to end, which is, you know, do you see that organizing as occurring through uh, reinvigorated labor movement? Is it through like DSA chapters? And what do you make of these new? I just talked to a guy today who's lead worker organizer organizing his Home Depot workforce outside of Philadelphia. I mean, this is something I haven't seen in my entire life. Um, what do you make of those developments and how significant they could be?
2: I think it's fantastic. Uh, you guys are both uh, old enough to know, because <laughs> sometimes I talk to people who literally were born in 2000. Um, <laughs> you're old enough to, to see this, that even with all the problems we've talked about on the left right now, even with all of our weaknesses, you compare the political culture to 10 years ago, even with the defeats that, we, that Sanders has suffered and even with Build Back Better being eviscerated, we can, in the mainstream culture, issues are being raised that were inconceivable 10 years ago. You don't find, 10 years ago, if you brought up single payer, people would say the gulag, <laughs> death panels, um, government run systems don't work. Nobody, nobody says that anymore. The question now is why don't we have single payer? Why don't we have national health care plan? When right now the, the uh, talk around interest rates being raised, um, Crystal and Kyle, in mainstream media, you have the New York Times and the Post running op-eds saying, "Hey, you don't need to destroy millions of lives to bring down inflation. There are other ways of doing it." This is inconceivable before 2016. Mm-hmm. So, look—the the, the main the political culture has now moved to the left, and that's because of the Sanders campaigns. You will now have organizing going on. Seventy-two percent of the population supports trade unions. That's that's astounding.
1: Yeah, it is
2: right. So we are in a place now where culturally because the political discourse now finally acknowledges that working people are human beings and that there's real ways of improving their lives without shitting on them. You are now in a place where the probability of some sections of that culture coming together and starting to do organizing activities because working people see, hey, everyone doesn't hate us. Maybe we do have some rights. Hey, it's actually possible to win section of the middle class saying, even though you're white and poor, you're still a human being. So maybe we should go organize them. This is all very positive and you're seeing the shoots of the organizing actually starting. I think there is zero guarantee that we will win. There's absolute possibility that the right outflanks whatever incipient organizing there is. But in my, I've been in this country now 40 years, I've never seen a time where social Democrats or socialists could actually find some shoots of real political culture and political language where you could raise real issues. And that's all a very positive thing. It just has to be turned into actual organizing because without the organizing, it's absolutely guaranteed that the right will win.
1: Yeah. I think that is all really well said. Um, Such a pleasure, such a treat to get to talk to you for um, such a great period of time today. Me too. I really uh, encourage everybody to go out and grab this book, if not all of your books. Uh, The title, again, is Confronting Capitalism. Lovely to speak with you, Professor.
2: You too. Thanks so very much for having me.
1: Our pleasure. All
0: right, so that was Professor Vivek Chibber. That was a very, very substantive conversation. I like it when I'm talking to somebody who is a professor and I ask questions that I would ask of a professor, and then they give me a direct answer. Because yeah. usually with professors, you can say something and then they say, you, they end up going all over the place and don't really answer.
1: Well, I think it's unusual to have someone who has such a like big picture, high level view, but also very like practical, realistic, reality-based thinking. That's what I think makes him so special and um, why it was such a treat to get to dig in with him.
0: Yeah, he's one of very few. And honestly, that's one of the things about the left that annoys me the most. Is that with a lot of people who are high-level thinkers, it's just sort of like, like revolution. Skip a few steps. We're at like some sort of utopian or or near utopian society, and it's like, wait, no, you need to like, you are not going to convince any normie by doing that. And you know, one of my big things is like, I embrace my normiedom. Mm -hmm. I never want to get lost up my own ass in this own little like subculture of of insular lefties. Like, you need to embrace normiedom, and you're not that like. People don't want to hear you bring up, you know, Leninism and then say uh, revolution and then we're there. And it's like, what the that none of that makes any sense. You have to walk people through it. What exactly are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Why do you think what you're even trying to do? Is possible.
1: It's sort of a protection mechanism, though, from having to deal, which I understand with this like slings and arrows of the current political moment, because you can just basically like exempt yourself from having to deal with that messiness because it's not the ultimate socialist utopian revolution that you're waiting for. And so, you know, you can sort of say, well, none of this is good. Enough. It's not worth engaging on this issue or that issue, et cetera, or engaging with this um, election that's coming up. Because ultimately it's not the socialist revolution and ignores the very concrete things that can be done right now today that can marginally make people's lives better and hopefully move us towards a place of incremental change that leads us somewhere.
0: Yeah, everything is worth doing along that road. I have the polar opposite view. Oh, it doesn't matter for reasons X, Y, and Z. Literally everything matters. All of it matters from the tiniest little political issue you can imagine that even just affects a local level. Yeah. All of it matters. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah, I I just – I think he's great. I mean, the fact that he uh, he's very empirical in his analysis, mm-hmm. that's another thing that I like. I like empiricism over just theory. Like, I need you to, to be able to point to something like, well, that's where we're going first. And then after that, we're going to try this. And if that doesn't work, we do this. That's what he's all he about. He also
1: doesn't bullshit you. When I'm like, okay, so he's... he's- preferred outcome is market socialism and you're like okay well what are the examples he's like there aren't any and here's the problem it's like i'm surprised I you appreciate didn't bring up, that you know i'm
0: surprised you didn't bring up what is it the 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 madrigan corporation or yeah. whatever it's
1: called and there's also that region in italy that i'm blanking on the name these are things that richard wolf brings up but right you know in yeah. terms of like at a countrywide scale
0: is it madrigal or madrigan i don't know which one it is
1: gone i think madrigan.
0: okay well whatever that's one example of a giant co-op that is
1: Yeah. A giant corporation that is competitive. Co-op company that is competitive. But it's not he's you know, it's not a company. It's not a country. not An entire nation.
0: But I will say I think market socialism is the least far fetched and utopian version Mm -hmm. of socialism, in my opinion, because it requires very little tweaking to get there. Like you could, in theory, pass a law tomorrow that says. All the companies, there's no longer one dictator at the head of it. Now all the decisions have to be democratic. And you can democratically choose, like Dave's going to be the manager and Greg is going to be an expert in this area, but you have to democratically choose it. You could, in theory, pass one law and have market socialism implemented by like the end of the year. So it's not that utopian.
1: He makes a great point that even if you just, just quote unquote, got single payer healthcare and nationalized the healthcare system, you're talking about 15% of the economy. Right, yeah. So that gives you a sense of like, That's not really incrementalism. That is actually a radical change from the status quo um, that can move you, you know, measurably towards what your ultimately ultimate goal is. So a lot of thought provoking stuff in there about how to think about our current political moment and how to move forward. But I mean, I think his core insight is actually absolutely correct. There was no way to get where we needed to go when you just have the messaging and you don't have the working class organizing to back it up.
0: That's his main point that he keeps coming back to is you need a permanent organized labor force. You need constant union representation in large numbers that applies consistent pressure to the political system, right, and which, where it's not which people drags just, the Overton window where right. we need it. Yeah. It's not
1: people just coming around every two or four years just doing to their, vote, like, right. canvassing or deep canvassing or whatever they're doing. He smirched
0: that, but he's saying yeah. this has to be the anchor that it makes has everything to be else positive. more popular. significant
1: than that. It has to be more enmeshed in the community, more part of the daily life, more of an ongoing conversation than just trying to persuade people using messaging tactics um, and political sloganeering to show up for your preferred candidate.
0: Yeah, well, that poll he referenced, which we've talked about, uh, over 70% of Americans now support labor unions. Uh, It's It's the first time in our lifetime, and I think it's because people realize, ain't nobody looking out for us, so we gotta look out for ourselves. I
1: mean, I have talked about that poll so many times, I'm sure Breaking Point's viewers are sick of hearing about it, but I just look back at, you know, even in the Obama era, labor union support was underwater, and there was a hard partisan divide. Now, I think for a whole host of reasons, but accelerated by the pandemic and the fact people realize like, oh, our bosses will literally risk our lives and kill us for a profit. Right. I think that has really shifted people's thought patterns about their jobs, about society, about a whole host of things. And so I think the rising increase in labor union support is, uh, is one indicator of how much things have shifted. It is, it is one of the most hopeful signs you can look at in America right now.
0: Definitely. All right, guys, uh, we love you. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody support the show on Substack. We appreciate that. You get the newsletters if you sign up on Substack and you get the videos of the interviews a day early. Uh, Everybody else can listen for free, the audio version of the show. But thank you to everybody who already is uh, paying on Substack and everybody else, please consider it. We don't have any advertisers here. We love you guys and we'll talk to you soon.